Last week we had reasons to rejoice in the unchanging God, the immutable God, and His immutability as a source of comfort and strength by which we can trust that our God is not going to change. How terrible of a thought would it be if God was mutable, if He could change, if He could If he was not impassioned, that if he was a God of passions, given over to his passions like man. God is not a man, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And it's because God is unchanging that we are not destroyed. God was a man with a man's temper. Surely looking at the wickedness of the world, he in a fit would destroy the entire world. But God does not pitch fits. He does manifest his anger. He manifests his joy. He manifests his love, his mercy. God has real and genuine emotions. But his emotions are not contingent. God is not contingent on anything in any aspect of his being. We refer to theologically what is called the aseity of God. His self-existence and his emotions are not contingent upon anything. God himself cannot, as the the definition of God is, be contingent, that is, children dependent on anything. We are very, very contingent. We are affected by our environment. We can be conformed, manipulated. We can often be like a yo-yo tossed to and fro. Even in little ways that we don't even comprehend on a daily manner. But God is not so. God is beyond environment. God is not affected by environment. He is transcendent. He is environment for in him we live and move. And the entire universe has its existence. How does this apply to the doctrine of Christ? How does this... That's our theology proper, the study of God. What about our Christology? And how does this relate to the person and work of Jesus Christ? After all, Jesus Christ was a man. He was a fully man. He was a mutable man, a changeable man. He was contingent. He was hot. He was cold. He was hungry. He was happy. He was sad. He was even angry at times. So how do we relate these two things within Jesus Christ? On one hand, he is the eternal, unchangeable, immutable, impassioned Son of God, the second person of the Trinity as we describe it in human terms. But on the other hand, he is the man Jesus. So how do these things correlate? Now in this sermon, I'm not going to be able to perfectly coordinate the mysteries of the Incarnation and how God how he's fully God and fully man. And if I ever fully saw that mystery, just fire me right then and there because I'm selling you uh, a bad load there. But we want to look at this in the aspect of being able to rejoice in the unchanging work of Christ and that his divine nature affects him and that he is able to be an unchanging savior. He has the power and ability to be an unchanging Savior. And we can certainly rejoice in the aspect that Jesus Christ is an everlasting, unchanging Savior. You can see the application is easy there. That if He is your Savior, 
and he has divine immutability, you can and ought, and we all need to remind each other to rejoice in that fact. And we can rejoice in that fact always, no matter what circumstance we're going through, no matter what trial we're going through, no matter if we're battling Apollyon or going through the valley of the shadow of death, we have an unchanging God and an unchanging Savior. And so has I have these four points. Number one, he is unchanging in his person. He is unchanging in his person. Point two is his priesthood is unchanging. His priesthood is unchanging. Thirdly, his work as great high priest is perfect and everlasting. His work in his priesthood is perfect and everlasting, so it's unchanging also. Lastly, our Savior is unchanging in the effects of that work in actual saving. He is unchanging in his work of saving. I know those are kind of the same. Now the reason I'm giving you these points to start is because these themes here are woven throughout the book of Hebrews. And I don't want to just give you a proof text. I don't want to just say the point and read a verse and say, this verse validates my point. I do that quite a bit. Probably the majority of my sermons is proof texting. Uh, but you have to be careful. There, there is a place in teaching for proof texting, but you, you, you can't build an entire theology on mere proof text. But within the book of Hebrews, we're going to read some lengthy passages where these all four of these ideas are interwoven and intermixed and expressed in different ways by the author of the book of Hebrews. So I want to, I'm, we're going to read several portions from chapter 1, chapter 7, 8, and chapter 10. And so I want you, as we read these, to see these ideas of he's unchanging in his person, he's unchanging in his priesthood, he's unchanging in his work, and he's unchanging in his saving. And all of these aspects cause us to rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. We need to remind ourselves to rejoice in these truths. The purpose of church is not just simply to accumulate theological knowledge and have these points of theological interest embedded into our minds, but we are to build our lives upon this truth. This is a rock upon which we build our house. When the wind and rains come, it will not be, destroy our house. But if you're ignorant of these truths, if you're ignorant of who God is, if you're ignorant of Jesus Christ and his work, then you're building your house on the foundation of sand. And it will get knocked over and messed up and destroyed. And many times you're going to have to start all over and rebuild your house from scratch and rebuild it right and properly. And it's certainly good to have the church there to help you when you do have to rebuild. First of all, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to look in particular how he is unchanging in his person and establish the divinity of Jesus Christ. So all those things we said about God and rejoicing in his power and rejoicing in his wisdom and rejoicing in his immutability, we can apply to Jesus Christ. All of those aspects apply to Jesus Christ. So there's lots of reasons to rejoice in Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1. God, 
who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who, pay attention right here, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath purged himself, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So here you see that these aspects are interwoven even in this third verse, second and third verse here. How several of these uh, points apply or are brought out out of this text. That Jesus Christ is indeed the second person of the Trinity and he is the brightness of the glory of God. That beatific vision, the vision of God, that killing glory, that glory that Moses could not fully see. That glory and light which no man can approach it unto. Jesus Christ is said here to be the brightness of that glory. And how bright is that glory? It's blindingly bright. And in our sinful condition, we can't see it or look upon it. That's a pretty sad condition to be. God needs to change our condition to where one day we can look at God We can look at God in the fullness of His essence. So that's where God's going to bring you, Christian, to that day when you can behold the brightness of God. And He is the express image of His person. What the person of God is, Jesus Christ is. There's that aspect of this divinity being whatever the the image of it uh, being Jesus Christ. And he has the power. He already hinted at that power in verse 2. By whom he also made the worlds, the entire vastness of the universe. And the vast expanse of the universe is all made by Jesus Christ. And that's quite a bit of power. Power that should cause you to rejoice. And not only does he have power to create this vast universe, which the vastness of it is to show that God indeed is infinite. And thus he has infinite power. And his infinite power is manifested not only in that he created this vast universe, but he upholds it with his power, moment by moment. It's certainly a scientific truth that there are lots and lots of questions of how things exist. We don't even, there's theories and, and, and suppositions about why the atom exists and how the atom exists, but we don't know for sure. But this the Christian knows by faith that it's upheld by the very power of God. Your body, your mind, your soul, the chair, this building, this world, this universe, moment by moment is upheld immediately and universally by the hand of God. By this we vanquish any idea in our minds that this world or universe or your life is any kind of clock that God has wound up and just set it off to go on its own. Ain't I such a good clockmaker? I made this world to function on its own. Yes, there are laws of nature and laws of how God created things and how God created things to interact, chemicals and properties and energies and such. But all of that is universally and immediately upheld by the power of Christ. 
And so this all-powerful Christ, this all-powerful God who upholds the world has done this work. He has this power. He has this wisdom. And this is what He did with that power and wisdom. That He purged Himself our sins. He Himself purged our sins. And there are no sins that are purged that are not purged by Jesus Christ. Every sin everywhere that was forgiven was forgiven by Christ alone. He Himself, not Him in us, not Him in our baptism, not Him in your faith, not Him in your good works, not Him in your church attendance, not Him in your chastity, but He Himself purged, cleansed your sins, both judicially and practically. And the sign that this work is finished, that it's a complete work, And here's where we get into that His work is unchangeable and that it's finished. When something's finished, you can't change it. It's done. It's when you do a work. I mowed the lawn three weeks ago. I can't undo the fact that I mowed the lawn. Can I? When you finish a work, it's completed. Jesus Christ finished the work of purging your sins. He manifests this in the ascension and sitting down on the right hand, the majesty on high. Let me give a few proof texts on the divinity of Jesus Christ, as particularly the Apostle Paul, Apostle John, and other places uh, certainly testify of the divinity of Jesus Christ. There is the famous Romans 9.5, when he speaks about who's speaking about the promise, whose are the fathers of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Paul very clearly calls Jesus Christ. Him coming in the flesh is God over all. Colossians 1.15 Who is the image? Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. As it says here that He is the brightness of His glory. He is the firstborn of every creature. Now some cults take this firstborn of every creature and try and say, see, Jesus is born. No, that idea of being firstborn is clearly manifested in the law as being that of preeminence. He is the preeminent of every creature. In Colossians 2.9, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And lastly, uh, although there are certainly uh, many verses, uh, here in Hebrews chapter 1, look down at verse... Uh, 8, like down at verse 8 of the book of Hebrews. But to the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness as a scepter of thy kingdom. But to the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is established forever and ever. And of course you could go on doing an entire year's worth of sermons on the deity of Jesus Christ. But we want to... Examine it in the idea that his deity provides the foundation for his unchangeable work in salvation. The impassibility and immutability of God. Jesus Christ in his divinity is impassioned. He will never look down from heaven and seeing you being stupid and cast you off. He's not going to pitch a fit and throw you away. He intercedes for you, not because of what you are, what you have done, or how good you are, but rather it is, it is His Father's will to save you. 
And he loves you and he loves to save you. Therefore, the father has an immutable will to save his people. Jesus Christ then has an immutable will to save his people, the people the father has given him. Such a wonderful doctrine of the immutability of God. Turn to John chapter 6. Read the famous verses that go out from this pulpit quite often. John 6, starting in verse 37. Very powerful section of scripture for you to conform your theology to. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is my Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have life everlasting, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the eternal will of the Father, and that is the eternal commission of the Son to accomplish this. So as we begin to see that he has an unchangeable priesthood, here in John 6 gives us kind of the idea of the nature of that priesthood. That his priesthood is to intercede for those whom the Father has given him. Those whom the Father has given to him will come to him, will see him, will believe on him, and they will be raised up on the last day. So this is the Son's commission, appointment, anointing of the Father. That's the idea of anointing, a commission. That is what the name Christ means, children. God's anointed, God's chosen. He has chosen to do this. He has chosen to be a high priest. So his work is perfect and a completed work. And nothing is more unchanging than something finished. So turn now to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Again, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is one of those books that makes you love the entirety of the Bible. And it, you, it is a disservice to simply, as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, to simply give a New Testament to somebody. If you just somebody just reads the New Testament, they're not going to understand the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is one of the most foundational about salvation in the Bible. It is just right there with the book of Romans about the basics of salvation, and especially with the idea of atonement. And the entirety of the Old Testament was given for the purpose of pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. These are types and shadows of what God had always intended to do. God never intended the covenant with Israel to be everlasting. It is not the all-encompassing uh, covenant. It was temporary. It was a servant. It was for the purpose of something better, something greater. In the book of Hebrews, the theme of it is that Jesus Christ is better. He's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the Old Testament sacrifices. But if you're ignorant about the Old Testament sacrifices, this is not going to have as much impact on your thoughts. You're not going to understand the fullness of what's available to you. And in the book of Hebrews, the author gets on to the people for him not being able to go as in-depth as he wanted to. 
that they're missing out because they, they don't understand the basics. And they're getting dragged off from the basics by all these side issues. Be careful about studying side issues outside of the gospel. The gospel is deep and rich. And it'll spend years and years and years and years studying the gospels, studying the doctrine of salvation. So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, someone once said. And in this church, we emphasize the idea that the article, as Martin Luther said, the article of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And your salvation, your understanding, the foundation of your Christianity will stand or fall based on your understanding of justification. Justification is a doctrine of atonement. Jesus making atonement for your sins. And to understand the doctrine of atonement, God for 2,000 years, 1,500 years, established the Old Covenant to teach us the idea of atonement. All these different sacrifices all point to some aspect of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, uh, beginning in Hebrews 7.18, it says this, For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law, as Brother Larry went over this morning, made nothing perfect, mature, complete, full. The law made nothing perfect. Why then is man incurably bent? Even to this day, me and you have that seed within us that still seeks to be perfected by the law. Man is incurably bent toward that which cannot make him perfect. Man is seeking out that which is weak and unprofitable to have a righteousness before God. Why is works righteousness weak and unprofitable? Unprofitable to you. Why? Because it is dependent, it is, it is weak and unprofitable because it is dependent upon the energies and righteousness of man. It is dependent upon you, your will, your energy, your righteousness. And the Bible clearly testifies that you have a very weak will, very weak righteousness, and weak energy toward God. That is why man is always seeking a righteousness by the law. Even if you have an understanding of grace, your flesh, that old man within you still rejoices in the idea of obtaining a righteousness by your energy, your righteousness, your will, so that they can boast that they contributed something to their salvation. As the doctrine of free grace is utterly and completely humbling to man, because it strips you of all righteousness. Even in your initial salvation, it is by the grace of God. You contributed the sin that made your salvation necessary, John Owen said. Our native-born pride fights against not having any righteousness. Our pride wants the ability to hold on or to even let go of salvation. Our pride wants the choice to be ours so it can boast of doing something. On the other hand, the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. But there's something better than your will, your energy, your righteousness. That is a divine, unchanging, 
immutable righteousness and immutable will to be saved. There's times in your life, as we're going to read in Pilgrim's Progress this afternoon, have you ever had those thoughts enter in your head that you don't want to be saved? Have you ever had the devil whisper in your ears to just cast God and Christ and religion off? Just, you can't do it anyway. You're failing. Just cast off Jesus Christ. Just just be done with it. Quit being a hypocrite. Quit trying. You fail so much. You don't love God with all your heart all the time. Isn't that a sad thought that sometimes we don't want to be saved? But by God's mercy and grace, we flush those thoughts out. We press on. But if you imagine if your salvation was based on your will, your energy, your righteousness. Because you have a immutable will, immutable energy, and immutable righteousness. Sometimes you're not very energetic in Christianity. But your salvation and the work behind that salvation is immutable. Because you have an unchangeable priesthood backing it, interceding for you, making atonement for you. And His will always wants you to be saved. And His will cannot be changed to want you to not be saved. We pick up in um, verse... Skip down to verse 20. Skip down to verse uh, seven to Hebrews 7 verse 20. And inasmuch has not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests being made without an oath, but this man with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here the Lord reveals for our comfort the basis of the anointing of Jesus Christ is an oath. Why did God confirm a priesthood upon Jesus Christ by an oath? Have you ever wondered that? Is it wondered, did God worry that he wasn't going to be able to keep his promise? So he doubled down in his own mind. He says, okay, I'm really going to do it. I promise I'm going to do it. Was it because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was worried that the Father wasn't going to keep his word? I mean, isn't the word of God enough? Was Jesus worried that his father would lie to him or fail so he made him promise? Pinky swear with me. I'm worried about this. No. No. This oath that Jesus Christ is a priest forever is for our comfort. Because we doubt the goodness of God. We are not like Jesus. We all too often doubt God. And we're fearful of God failing. We're fearful of God's promises to us. We're fearful of His work for us. How much easier would it be? How much easier would your lives, how much happier would your lives be if you could just simply trust Him all the time? So simply trust Him all the time. I mean, does God change? Does His sovereignty, does His providence change? And how much of your life have you wasted not trusting Him? Even if you're in a boat and there's a storm and the winds and waves are raging all about and everybody's panicking, Oh, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and be able to sleep in the boat. Look around at everybody and say, Oh, you have little faith. Don't you know there's a God out there and all these winds and waves and the water and all that? Lightning striking buildings and such. All that's in the hand of God. 
All your enemies, everybody giving you a hard time in life, they're all in the hand of God. Oh, that we had the faith to do something simple and basic like trust God. How much time do we waste worrying and fretting and being fearful? How much happier would our lives be if we just simply trusted God? That's kind of Christianity 101, isn't it? These words are easy to say. It's easy. I can come up in the pulpit and tell everybody, you need to have faith in God. You just need to trust God more. It's easy to tell others to trust, but we must. You know What are we going to do? Tell people not to trust God? We're going to help encourage each other to continue to trust God. I'm going to encourage you, you encourage me, and we'll get along a lot better that way. Imagine not having the church to encourage you. Not having the church to build you up and to edify you and pray for you and love you. We have no other message but to trust God. And it is out of our faith and trust in God that all the other issues of life flow out of. Your trust of God is the very foundation of your Christianity. And are you trusting in a God that has an immutable will for you to be saved? That's a strong trust. Or are you trusting in a God that might not save you? Are you trusting in a God that uh, your position in heaven is not all that secure? Maybe, maybe not. Hope you do right. Hope you have enough of whatever righteous works you have in mind or pretend to think that God wants. Are you trusting in God fully and wholly and completely with all your heart, soul, and mind? You can trust God because, look down in verse 22 of chapter 7. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. That is chapter 7, isn't it? Verse 22. And by so much was made a surety of a better testament, a better, a new and better covenant. And that there's this surety, this guarantee. The new covenant was always the plan of God. God made the old covenant for the purpose of contrasting it with the new. It gives us something to picture the old covenant with the sacrifices and temple worship and the priesthood and Aaron gives us something to picture in our mind to help us understand salvation, to help us understand when God said Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what is a priest? God gave us a typical priest to point us to the only one true priest. All the Old Testament's for our admonition, our teaching, our instruction. So God had always intended everything to point to Jesus Christ. It gives us something to picture in our mind. The old was weak for many reasons, as the book of Hebrews points out. But one point that the Old Testament was not as good as the new is that the priests were always dying. They were always sinful. They needed an atonement for themselves. How could they make atonement for everybody else when they were sinners? They had infirmities, and they needed atonement for themselves. So they were weak. They were sinful, and truly, verse 23, there were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, in contrast to those priests that were always dying, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. There was an age limit, a service limit, a time limit on all the priests. Once you got to a certain age, you didn't do the sac- you, you didn't do the intercessory work of the priest anymore. You were retired. You died. You quit. 
But he continues forever after a different, a better priesthood, a priesthood that's not based on age. Because he lives forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Look there in verse 24. His priesthood will never change. And you should rejoice in the fact that his priesthood on your behalf will never change. Jesus continues forever. Therefore rejoice, Christian. He has an unchanging priesthood. He was anointed by the Father to ever make intercession for you. And since he continues forever, he will forever continue to make intercession for you. That should be a cause of rejoicing that he ever lives to make intercession for you. Therefore, he is able to save them, save you, to save me to the uttermost. That come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ, because of how God and his infinite wisdom, of which we can rejoice in, arranged our salvation, is that he saves us to the uttermost. There is no part of you necessary for salvation that is not saved. There is no aspect of work that is not secured infallibly by Jesus Christ. Is able to save you to the uttermost. Think of all your sins. Think of all your pride. Think of all the times you've doubted the goodness of God. And know, have faith this hour that He is saving to the uttermost. Verse 26. For such a high priest became us, who is holy. Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as though high, those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the other people, for the, for the peoples. For this he did once when he offered up himself. This shows the his perfect sacrifice, his unchangeable sacrifice. There's no need to repeat this sacrifice because it's perfect. It's unchangeable. It's, it's perfect before God. And therefore he did it once. For the law makes high, makes high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Again, here's the unchanging aspect of his priesthood. He is consecrated forever. Get into chapter 8. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have. How often does Spurgeon point out these possessive pronouns? We, I. We believers have. And say to yourself this. I have a great high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven who intercedes to God for me. Can you say that? Do you by faith have a high priest who is interceding to God for you? Flip a page over in your Bibles to chapter 9. Starting in verse 24. Where Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest 
entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, in the end of that age, the Jewish age, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's very interesting here that verse 25 says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often. And Catholics make a big deal of that word offering. It's a presenting to God. Uh, a lot of the times the Baptists can character, uh, character, caricaturize the Mass into saying it's a re-sacrifice of Christ. And, if you was, and, and we use that terminology, but uh, the Catholics would say, no, we're not re-sacrificing Christ. It's a bloodless sacrifice. It is a, we're re-offering up to God the one true sacrifice that He accomplished on the cross. So you're offering this sacrifice again and again and again and again. But here the book of Hebrews says that he offers once forever at the end of the world. And this offering actually, and here's where your theology must understand this, that his sacrifice put away sin forever. That one sacrifice put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Does your theology include the idea that Jesus Christ's sacrifice actually, genuinely, before God, put away sin? Is there a chance that maybe He didn't put it all away and you got to put some of the stuff away that He didn't catch? As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those of the things can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year in the case of Catholics day by day make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have no more consciousness of sin. How many religions have you have to make atonement for your sin over and over and over and over again? In the Catholic Church, you represent the Mass over and over again. You need the sacraments, means of grace to forgive your sins and menial sins and venial sins. and uh, You need your uh, daily offering up to Jesus, uh, offering up to God the body and the heavenly host and the sacrament and Oh boy, it's a mess. Man's religion has a continual sacrifice for sins, a continual man-made sacrifice for sins. That's not Christianity. That is not Christianity. The book of Hebrews, look at this. It says, if they had forgiven sins, you wouldn't need to re-offer up to God. Verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifice for sins you had no pleasure. Yet man is off constantly trying to offer something to God for the atonement of sins. What we offer something to God is our obedience and love in response to being forgiven of our sins. That's what we offer to God. That's what we were singing about earlier. 
but not to obtain forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And what was God's will for him to do? Why did God anoint him priest with an oath and promise him to be a continuing priest forever? Is to seek and save that which was lost. To save his sheep. To make that atonement that would put away sins forever. And this was his will. Jesus Christ said, I'm, this is what I want to do. I want to do this. Look at verse 10. Uh, verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They can never take away sins because the only sins taken away were those taken away by Jesus once for all. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, do you see the unchangeableness of this sacrifice, the immutability of this sacrifice? God has accepted this sacrifice. His work is completed. It's done. It's finished. Now He's applying that to us by interceding for us effectually for His Father. He, he has one sacrifice for sins forever. He sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by the one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You see, you say, well, if we, if we just have free forgiveness of sins, we can uh, just act however we want. Our sins are gone forever. He made atonement forever. They're put away. We can do whatever we want. Let's rejoice by sinning. And praise God by sinning. Oh no, 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 no. Did you read the text? Only those who are being sanctified have, have had their sins forgiven. And if you're not being sanctified, if you're not being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then your sins are not forgiven and you are in the midst of your sins. You will die in your sins that you love so much. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. That's why Psalm 119 just speaks so wonderfully to us. Because in the new covenant, those he made the sacrifice for sins, those who are being sanctified, they're being sanctified because... He is writing God by a spirit is writing his law in our hearts and minds so we know it and love it and do it. He adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where the remission of these there is no longer an offering for sin. Where the remission of these is no longer an offering of sin. And has this, has Jesus Christ just two more passages and then we'll end. Turn to Hebrews 13, verse just one verse, verse 8, which wraps all of this up. 
and puts this in your mind. And when you read this verse, think of Him in His priesthood. Think of Him in His sacrifice. Think of Him in His intercession for you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. End with this, Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not. How sad is that to be in a place where the grace of God is being proclaimed to you, the words of Jesus are being proclaimed to you, and you don't do them. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, he shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Some have spent their whole lives building a house upon the sand. We see people starting their lives, living their lives on building their house, building on the sand, and we know what is going to happen to them. We warn them, we encourage them. They don't listen because they are foolish. They have no heart for wisdom. They have no heart for God or His law. And we know their house is going to fall and great will be the fall of it. Some of us know the feeling and heartbreak of having our houses fall. But you may now, from this moment, build your house upon the solid, unchanging rock of Jesus Christ. And all of us can take heed to do the words that Jesus Christ commands us. All of us now can rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has done a perfect work on our behalf. And we ought to rejoice that it is His will confirmed by an oath for our sakes. God has promised that Jesus Christ will do a work on our behalf. And that this salvation has come to man. Deuteronomy 33.27 The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Underneath are the everlasting arms. His arm is not weak. He will not fail. He will support you throughout all of eternity. Let's pray.